Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast, we talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear to places a dive and scuba news. Scuba Obsessed episode 471 is recorded live November 12th, 2020. Welcome back. I'm Darren Gilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan. Joining me this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? Good to be here. We woke up this morning, had a lot of white all over the ground. Fortunately, it wasn't that, that snowy stuff, but it was a very heavy layer of frost this morning. Yeah, I, I had uh, a paint can opener sitting on my back deck because last, last weekend I painted some windows. And there had to have been almost a quarter inch of frost on that, which it was, was quite heavy. Yeah, it was, it was a little fluffy, but uh, you know, by the time I made it into work, it seemed like it was starting to go away. So I, I, I think that was our last warning. It's like everybody said, "See, we've told you it's coming, and <laughs> now it's going to be here." Yeah, I like to, to, on my calendar, I had to test my generator out on the 10th, and I didn't do that, so I'll have to do it this weekend. Yeah? Yeah. So, so you've got a generator? Oh, yeah. I pre-tested it already, but I put it down that uh, 30 days later, I want to do it again, make sure uh -huh. everything is still running, and got my backup lines ready to go, just cool. in case. A suicide cable? Is that what you mean? Yes, I do. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm conscious of how to do it correctly. I, and. But, uh, you know, you still got to be damn careful with that. You know, oh, you oh yeah. Breakers and, you know, what's the key item? Heater blower, number one. I got gas. I'm good. Yeah. Yeah. Because all you just need to do is get that heater. For, for me, uh, the primary use for a generator is the well. You know, when you have yeah. animals, uh, you know, I've got enough. You know, I, I've got water in the house for probably three days stored up. But, you know, for the horses, it really, I might be able to make a day and a half before I've got to start hauling water in from town. Yeah. Which can and get it expensive is, uh, and very troublesome. Yeah. And, and it is that time of year. I mean, it's the, you know, you get, a, you get a nice ice storm come through here and we had the strong winds earlier in the week, which reminded me why all the ships seem to go around in these November gales. Oh, yeah. So I'd like to thank everybody who's in the chat room who, who showed up. We have Dave and Derek and Eric and Karen all in there. So thank you. Glad to see that you're in there. And we also appreciate everybody who's been downloading the program. Uh, many of you download and, and listen to it, and we certainly appreciate that. So let's go ahead and jump right on into the show notes, or show notes, in, into the scuba news. First article up is air supply hose pops loose during Ohio deputy scuba diver training. Well, training in a quarry in Columbus, Ohio area, a deputy of the Franklin County Sheriff's Department dive unit unexpectedly provided his fellow officers with a teachable moment when his air supply hose came loose. The officer said on November 6th, the deputies were about 20 feet underwater practicing switching from their primary air hose to a backup bottle, they said. 
One of, when one of the officers' air hoses popped loose from the primary tank, started to empty. Everyone worked together, shut down the primary tank, and surfaced safely, the sheriff's office said. Um, and that's all the details I have, but... Did you look at the video? No, I... If I look at the video, it would kill my internet. So did you watch the video? Well, I'm watching it as we speak. I, did, I was curious the same way you were. It's like, what? And bingo, that little sucker just blew, whipping around the two guys on both sides of him, or trying to uh, grab the hose that's whipping back and forth. And uh, the one guy's got it. It looks like they're on a platform like at um, Lake 16. So they're yeah. on a platform. they got two sections open in the middle, three divers on this top one. And uh, that was impressive. Oh, good. So, that little thing could beat him to death. And this is in the water. So even with the resistance of the water, it was still flapping around. Oh, big time. Big time. Uh, was it a full-size hose or is it one of those those thin hoses? No, that was regulator hose. Huh. But, but when it went, it ever, everything around him was nothing but bubbles because it blew in the back. Could this have been the... Uh, so it was a regular hose. It wasn't the... Uh, the hose that goes to the uh, your gauge. No, it was not the gauge one. Because if that pops off the gauge, you got a reducer at the end of it. Yeah, but I was just thinking that it might it also would be at a little bit higher pressure. You'll empty that tank. It was an impressive video, so if you get a chance, take a look at it. Yep, take it's a look. Like everything was going nice and focused. I kept thinking, that looks like at the bottom of a swimming pool. And then as it started getting close to that episode, it's like, wait a minute, I realized it's like Lake 16, and then bingo. It got everybody's attention on both sides of the guy, too. Yeah, well, and it's and it's good that they were doing training. So not only was it a about the best place for something like that to happen, yeah, uh, but it reinforces the training you're going through because that's something that could have been happening anywhere. Yes. Uh, uh, but what what I also thought was was nice was they were practicing switching from their main to a spare, which was a backup bottle. So they had redundant air and they would have redundant regulators. So even if this had gone bad, he, he should have, or he should have had another tank and regulator. He was well, able to breathe. I'm, I'm looking at it again, trying to see how they have their bailout. And right now, since I got a, you know, just a, front of them. I can't see that yet. I'm going to see if that pops off again. Because he got the one long hose coming around to his regulator. I do not see where his bailout is, though. Or his backup. Uh, it should be popping any time now. I know nobody can see it except me, but what can I say? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the other guy, yeah, it blew in the back. And whipping around pretty good. Now, if nothing else, take a look at the video. Uh, if you've never had that happen, that'll give you a really good, you know, viewpoint of what to expect. And and what is breaking when that happens? Is it just the is it fit, the uh, crimp fit on it, the hose? You can't, you can't really tell it because it is definitely on the back. And there's enough action when he's moving around with the guys. I can't get a good handle mm -hmm. on it but uh yeah the video itself is impressive it'll give you an idea if it happens to you if you've seen it and you've experienced something like that you won't panic if it happens to you and you're deeper yeah 
that was worth looking at. And then this next article is uh, talking about carving pumpkins underwater. And this is something that I usually ignore all the way through October because it just bombards all the, the press releases. But this one just caught my eye for some reason. Uh, Bernard Diver sinks to carve pumpkin surfaces with prize. Paula Pearson, a certified diver, took home the prize for the most creative Minnesota School of Diving Inc.'s annual Halloween underwater parking pumpkin carving contest at the was it Siuna County State Recreation Area near Crosby. Uh, Paula said that it can even be harder, especially if one doesn't know what they're doing, especially if it's conjoined pumpkins. The bigger the pumpkin is, the more buoyant it is, and it wants to go to the surface, so you have to hold it down. We put weights inside the pumpkins, and then your hands start to get cold, and you don't have the dexterity you normally would, so it's very challenging. Uh, Pearson's competed on Halloween and Minnesota School Diving's annual underwater parving pumpkin carving contest at Louise Mine Lake near Crosby, Minnesota, and received a prize for her bug-like creation made from conjoined pumpkins. The water isn't exactly warm, and it happens when you get down there, pumpkins start to get brittle because they're cold. So you have to be really careful, and you use your dive knife, which doesn't have a pointed end. Oh, is that a requirement? Are you required to use a dive knife? I don't know. Only one I've ever been involved in was you used your blunt edge dive knife. So I don't know if everybody has to have it. Well, that, that, well, that would make it more challenging because if, you know, if you brought some of those pumpkin carving tools, they can go pretty quick. Uh, Pearson said she obtained her pumpkin from Mike Koning of uh, Bernard uh, Raynard for about the past decade. The 66-year-old pumpkin grower sells all the pumpkins lot at Essentia Health Sports Club in Brainard. I've always show up and say, do you have a really neat pumpkin for me? Because I'm going to dive and carve it underwater. Pearson's recalled this year. He said, boy, do I have a pumpkin for you. Uh, Coring said he harvested the conjoined pumpkins four times in the last two decades that retired uh, Brainerd pumpkin utility workers been growing pumpkins. He agreed to let Pearson's have the conjoined pumpkin in exchange for photos of persons carving it pumpkins. He didn't want to give it away to me right away, but then I told him I don't need it till Halloween so you can have it till Halloween. Well, he gave it to me in a little advance, so I got the conjoined pumpkins, and I came out with the most creative pumpkin. More than a dozen divers competed, awards for the most spookiest pumpkin, other categories, but the Halloween contest is intended to be fun and encourage interest in diving. We got the pumpkins out because the fish like to come in, and they like to eat the pumpkin seeds and stuff, so there we are. We're arguing with the fish. We're mixing up the water. We're starting to get really cloudy, and you can't see what you're doing. And this is where I expect to say, and then we always lose a finger. Uh, person said the underwater pumpkin carving creations was inspired by a classic children's Hasbro game, Cootie, a bug building game for those three and older. Made a couple of antenna, made a couple of wings. We thought this would work, and it turned out pretty good. It's challenging, but there's no doubt about it. But it is so much fun, she said, for a prize-winning creation. Great fun. Yeah, and, and the article goes on to some, some pictures of pumpkins that were carved. But yeah, that's cool. There, there's a there's an interesting equivalent, sort of equivalency to this in skydiving. <laughs> Is it involve a knife and a pumpkin? Actually not, but it's a little weird like that. 
one guy goes out with a potato head. The other ones go out with the eyes, the ears, the nose, and the mouth. <laughs> and they have to get to and see if they could put that together before they have to do something different like pull. Oh, I was going to say, if you hit the ground, you lose. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, no second chance. Wow. I did post a couple of pictures of that conjoined pumpkin. Yeah, that is cool. I, I'm going to have to try that. I've kind of poo-pooed it in the past. Uh, not that I wouldn't want to do it, but it's just so overhyped. But yeah, maybe if it if it gets, you, know, you get a good press release in there and people who normally wouldn't be interesting in diving, interested in diving see it, maybe you could create some interest. But you have to have a good gonna, location. Yeah, you're not going to get any school to let you use their swimming pool. I'll tell no. you that. <laughs> they don't like the guts and the drains. Oh, I'm trying to think of where would we do it around here if we had to pick a spot. Well, it wouldn't be Singer because that is a papa. Gee, Forest Beach right there in the sand. Come on. Yeah, Ideal place. That. Yeah, that would Ideal be good. place. That'd be easy to get in and out. Yep. And uh, a sandy bottom. And and you could actually get press to show up for that one. Yep, because they could be on the water, on the dock or the pier out and get shots all around them. And their water in these photos looks a little clearer than what I think we're going to get. We would get there. Does it start uh, to clear up by October? No, we've got over seven, eight foot visibility at Pawpaw. Yeah. Just, just right off the dock. Yeah. Seems like the last time I was there off the dock there, I, I, I think I had seven inches, but that was, when did we do that? That was probably July 4th ish. No, that wasn't. We still had boaters out there last week. Fishermen. Oh, really? The diehards. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Won't be too oh, long. No ago. ice yet. No ice. Yeah. Well, this this cold weather we get, we're, we're getting this week should help to uh, get things ready for ice to start building. Yeah. And then we, here we have a deep water sightings of a rare big fin squid, and it reveals some of its serious weirdness. An extensive survey of the deep waters off Australia has resulted in a trove of big fin squid sightings. And by trove, we mean the detection of five individuals. These deep sea creatures are exceptionally rare. So any new observations are quite valuable to scientists. Deep sea cephalopods are highly diverse, widespread, yet often shrouded in mystery. And this opens a new study published today in Plus One. Deep sea cephalopod, in this case, is a strange, poorly understood marine animal known as the big fin squid. The new paper co-authored by marine biologist Deborah Osterhage from CSIRO Ocean and Atmosphere in Tans Tasmania, Australia, describes a recent deep water survey in which five of these animals were captured on camera. The resulting data is filling in some important gaps about the big fin squid and their distribution, physical characteristics, and behavior. Sightings of the odd squid, a member of some family I'm not going to pronounce, are scant and little is known about them. To date, there have been only three confirmed sightings in the Southern Hemisphere, all in the Eastern Pacific. Dead specimens, mostly juveniles, sometimes make an appearance, but they're often badly damaged by trawling. What we now know, however, is that these squids have large fins, extraordinary long uh, vermiform, arms and tentacle filaments that dangle behind them like impossibly long strands of spaghetti. Uh, 
Osterhange and her colleagues recorded a big fin squid during expeditions, the great Australia bright deep water marine program from 2015 to 2017. The team scoured the regions to learn about the geology ecology from the great Australian bight or GAB, a large open bay off the continental Southern coast. So they did so with a remote operated vehicle called the investigator, which equipped with a high definition video camera lights and paired lasers. The camera towed behind the boat took still photos every five seconds. Researchers managed to cover 108.5 square miles or 281, 281 square kilometers during the survey, collecting 75 hours of video and over 10,000 still images. The towed camera scanned depths between 3,104 and 10,689 feet or 946 to 3,258 meters. This all resulted in five sightings of big fin squid, which more than doubles the number of sightings in the Southern Hemisphere. What's more, it's the first time that big fin squid have ever been seen in Australian waters. Interestingly, these animals are observed close together. In one case, two squid were seen within 12 hours of each other. In another case, two, uh, 3.7 miles apart or six kilometers and all five big squid, big squid, big thin squid were seen over two areas, two in one and three in the other clustering of these individuals likely due to specific environmental needs or increased reproductive opportunities, according to the paper. As for the preferred habitat, the squid seemed to like areas containing soft sediment, the lower slopes of erosion channels, the upper sections of marine submarine canyons. The animals were spotted at depths between 6,562 and 9,834 feet, or 2,000 to 3,000 meters. As to whether they are relatively high numbers of individuals can be seen as part, the GAB equates to a big fin squid hotspot. Remains to be seen, says its authors. And then they go on for a little bit more. And that's going to be a lot of divers who see those in the real, in the real world. No, I, I don't think I'm going to quite get down to those depths. But, you know, we talk about how odd some of these things look, and these definitely have that alien appearance to them. Yeah, I posted a couple of pictures, and I couldn't figure out what they're talking about, big fin, until you look at some of the, almost one of them, it looks like he's got wings. The other one's got a big head. Now, last week, didn't we talk about the, um, the horny squid? Yes, that was a different variety. Yeah. And at first when I saw this article, that's what I thought it was. But this one is uh, is, is different. But it's, you know, because squid be... kind of have those flaps, and this is just the extreme version of those. Yeah. These would, these would be quite interesting to see if you were able to see them. I mean, they're unique. And like those are not these... the kind that's going to be dragging your boat down to the bottom, though. No, no. And, and like a lot of these, the only time they really get seen by you know the average mortal people is when they're caught in a net or or show up dead on a beach yep and being so soft many times about before they get to the beach they become lunch and then this one's out of japan somebody shared this in the chat room before we got started so i'm just we'll give them credit who was that who um that was eric dropped it in boat shaped like a zipper pulls Unzips Tokyo Samata River. Japanese sculptor and uh, installation artist Yushiro Suzuki uh, created this nine meter long zipper fastener ship to unzip Tokyo's river 
he's known for drawing inspiration from everyday objects. First got the idea of the unusual ship design when looking down from Tokyo Bay from an airplane window. He observed ships zipping across the water and thought how they looked like they were uh, splitting apart the water just like a zipper parts a jacket. He said, I'd take his vision further by creating a nine meter long ship in the shape of a jacket zipper featuring chrome colored body bridge and puller, the three parts that make up the real zipper. The zip fastener ship just look like it's tiny counterpart. The Sumida river was traditionally the border between ancient provinces of Mashushi and Shiomosha. So the zipper, the zipper ship is a visual reminder of the divide. Well, it looks like a zipper. I'll tell you that much. Yeah. Well, you got some press out of it. Uh, it doesn't look like a comfortable boat. I'd like to have seen the undercarriage and see what they had to propel it. Well, let's see how big it, it didn't. We he had the size. It wasn't that big. Um, well, a nine meter long ship. That's that's a pretty decent. Yeah, thirty you know, foot. Tw- just about. Yeah, yeah. So that's a that's a pretty. That's yeah, bigger than most of the boats we're diving in. Ah, uh, yeah. So I'm I'm guessing that this is just to cover so that he get the drone shot from overhead. Yeah, that when this is done, they'll just take that off. Yeah, I'm looking at the drone shot. It looks pretty good. Mm-hmm. Opening the river. I tried yeah. to take a screenshot, but it just wouldn't do it for me. Well, and people want lot, to have to look. Yeah, you have, you have to take a look, which we'll have in the show notes uh, when this article comes out, or this issue, this issue, this episode comes out. Well, I don't really need for a nap. Uh, Havar, two 2,000-year-old preserved shipwrecks, ancient wine jugs, and a strainer discovered. Uh, Sektro. The island on the south side of the Croatian island of Havar has become one of the most important archaeological sites in the Adriatic. As many as two shipwrecks dating back to ancient times are currently being researched. These are two completely preserved shipwrecks on which there are no traces of devastation or looting. Therefore, these are rare finds in the Adriatic and so important, said archaeologist Dengri from the Conservation Department the Ministry of Culture explains to the HRT. The older shipwreck, which was discovered in 2017, has meanwhile been explored and protected, and its location has become interesting to tourist divers explorers. A discreet galvanized cage was placed on the find uh, through the windows, which the atmosphere can be seen very well, says archaeologist T. We'll call him Cat. <laughs> the, the amphora are very photogenic and stand in regular rows. They stood in the bowels of the ship as it sailed, but these are not the secrets of the island hides. Recently, local Marino Jacas discovered another shipwreck and informed archaeologists. I discovered it from fishing stories. Just from the stories of trawler, these nets get stuck in a pile of amphorae. Amphora. Uh, we just discovered another shipwreck. It's also intact. It dates from the 3rd and 2nd centuries B.C., which is also very rare in the Adriatic. Um, the area is becoming a unique location, which has two preserved Roman underwater sites. Entire amphorae are rarely seen in such as the site. The entire shipwreck is very rare. It is really a, a rare adventure to be a member of the team watching it. All dives where you see something that is 2,000-year-old is very impressive. 
That's why we learn to dive. The ancient table jugs for serving wine and utensils and uh, for straining it was found in a dive uh, by the uh, Pakleni Islands just off Havar. He, he's, it looks like he's cradling that uh, amphora in the photo there. Yeah. The wine amphora are dated the period between the 3rd and 5th centuries and inside are coated with resin to make it watertight. Uh, the amphora was found, uh, it is funded by Croatian Science Foundation. This, this a lot of excellent photos. Doesn't appear to be very deep. Uh, the guys are not wearing rebreathers or anything like that. No, they're all not even doubles. And Viz looks good. Yeah. I mean, some they got of some products are really nice. I don't yeah. know. I've not seen the round ones like the picture on the back of the boat where he's got one. That's an interesting one. Do you know the one I'm talking about? Yeah, I'm looking at it right now, and it's a it's a little squatty. I just I wonder if I wonder if that's more of a like a serving vessel. Would that be something like you maybe would have on the table? Well, I don't know. It had a cork in it. I'd make sure I rubbed it because that almost looks like a genie lamp, you know. <laughs> well, the other thing is, could that be have oil in it? It's a wick. I, I just don't know. I'm I'm sure somebody does. You know, the amphora were primarily lo- uh, used for transportation. You know, they would have, you know, wine or olive oil or other uh, liquids in it. Now, is that other one I posted the other picture? Is that that looks more round? Is that a broken one, or or that's an unusual looking one from what I normally see of amphoras? I don't think it's broken. I I don't necessarily think that's amphora. Do they say what it is? That's not what I consider amphora, but maybe maybe yeah. it is. Maybe it's just a smaller version. Yeah, because there's another shot where they're all sitting there and then he's holding it. So yeah. it must it must be unique and special. Now the 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 last one is that what they were calling the strainer? I don't know. It's it's interesting looking. Because that because oh. you're that first shot where he's on the boat, uh, it's got a net or a, heck, I'm posting a picture of it. Yeah, yeah, the net, he's, and he's he's, he's got, got the, the net, one in. The... The, yep, in his hand to the left. Uh huh. That's, I, I don't know if the two of them are the same item because it almost looks like it's got a neck coming off of it for a spout. Yeah. But it's interesting. And well, I couldn't it, tell if that was sea life on it or if those were like something designs. that was invented. Yeah, designs. Yeah. yeah. What? Well, yeah, it'd be interesting to know if that was broken, but they said, let's see what they called it. And they said, uh, uh, ancient wine jug strainer discovered and so i'm wondering if that's what they mean by strainer is did that have a particular use but why would it be yeah yep i don't know and and they don't give us enough information in the article but uh still very cool yeah and it's got to be close to shore too that one shot you can see the shoreline in the background which tells me it's also not going to be deep looking at what they're diving with well, and that's probably why they're a little surprised at the, you know, the age of it and, you know, 2000 years, years old and it's within, yep. you know, shoreline. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's hard to tell distance. You can't, I can't tell if that's a thousand yards or uh, a quarter mile, but it, it seems to be fairly close. I know that if we were diving the river and we came across that top of that jug, 
we'd be, I'd be awesome. <laughs> it certainly would be. People might accuse you of something if we find a 2,000-year-old jug in the St. Joe. Uh, we'd probably get some PR. <laughs> so that does it for Scoob in the News for this week. Uh, and before the show, we were, we were chatting with Dave, and uh, I also saw, uh, saw Karen posting some photos. They had a dive last week. Looked like they were down there in, uh, what was it, North Carolina? where they were at so yeah it sounds like the weather was not conducive to uh having a real good time unless you like being seasick as i understand dramamine and other uh little pink pills would probably be uh well very well welcomed yeah you know it's a little rough it's it's kind of hard to keep the lunch down well the picture she took of the of the the octopus on her shoe it's like damn you know, just to see an octopus would be quite amazing to me. Yeah, I haven't seen one other than an aquarium. But to find one on your shoe? Come on, that's got to be awesome. That would be. No argument from me. So, uh, yeah, there's no megalodon teeth, but she uh, found a uh, tiger shark tooth. And I saw that one, yeah. She got a, it's next to a penny for size, so... <laughs> Yeah, Very but she cool. got out there and did it. That's more than what most of us have been doing this year. Yeah. Yeah, certainly. She's turned into a hardcore diver. That's all I got to say. Yep. Well, she had they had that little uh, period in time where she wasn't getting the water. So it sounds it looks like she's making up for it now. Yep. So very good. Yeah, and <laughs> that is cool. Uh, yeah, it, it it makes it tells me that I need to start planning for next year because I think uh, twenty twenty one is going to be screw COVID year. So I'm we're gonna I'm gonna try and anything I missed last year I'm gonna try and overdo it this year. So at least three times what I would in a normal year. We're making up for it there. The river is as kind to us next year as it is as, as it was this year. Mm-hmm. And even with the COVID, we were able to get out and do some nice weekend diving. The nice part, most of the guys diving were older. And quite often we got to dive in the middle of the day when others might have been working. Yeah. Well, it it was, I mean, it, it was good for social distancing and being outside, get your vitamin D. Yep. I was very, I was very glad everyone participated in that, you know, aspect of uh, socializing distance so nobody would get under the influence yep so yeah and uh, anybody got any dives coming up uh, i mean turkey dive is pretty much out i'm guessing i have not i've turned down a job or two since then but here lately it seems like i feel a lot i feel older than i am <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's, and you got to have somebody with you if you're going to dive in the afternoon. Yeah. Well, I've been trying to winterize. I, like I was saying earlier, I'm painting windows in the house. and mm-hmm. uh, I've got about half done, so the other half will just have to wait till next year. I really need to replace them, but I'm just painting them, trying to hold out a few seasons. Um, 
So, so when when do we have a prediction on ice? Is this going to be we a big ice season, or I've not heard of any anybody even thinking about ice diving down here. Maybe up north. And again, I understand they're going to try to have an ice diving class, but it will probably be up halfway, at least up the up the. No, I shouldn't take coast, middle of the state. Yeah. I mean, like Lansing, Lansing gets colder than us by a long shot. Oh, yeah. Easy, easy 10, 15 degrees colder. Yeah. So inland will have some more ice than we will here. Yeah. If you look at the, uh, you know, the planning maps, uh, where we are in Michigan uh, can be warmer than you would get down into Indiana. It's, it's, it's not that we're really warmer because of the lake effect. We just don't get as cold. So yeah. if, if. If the lake freezes over, then it's kind of a whole different game. And uh, that hasn't happened for a few years now, at least three, I think. Uh, I don't think the Lake Michigan has frozen over totally in many, many, many years. It seems like we covered it on the show where we had like a two-year stretch. Yeah. I think the most we've had is like 90, 95 at most. Yeah, I, I don't think it ever quite gets a hundred, but you know, I think anything over ninety percent, uh, I almost consider covered, and it certainly yep. cuts down on the evaporation, so we get the higher lake waters. Yep. Uh, how, how's speaking of that? How's the lake water level been this time of the year? We still we're up. still still up. Yep. If they had not had the pumps put in and valves put in down there by the bridge that goes over the Benton Harbor down by Whirlpool, that would uh-huh. be flooding. The reason it doesn't flood is they've got pumps in the building there now by the bottom side of the bridge that uh, keeps that pipe dry. Okay. Well, that, may, that would make sense. Oh. Somebody took some some plans and figured out how to do that. Yeah. Uh, do you have a dive safety story for the week? Well, actually, I do. It's called self-aware and prepared. Although symptoms after diving are not always due to DCS, it behooves divers who experience post-dive symptoms to contact Dan and seek medical attention promptly. Avoiding denial or denying what you may have uh, can lead to your not only discomfort, but other items that you really don't want to have. They say, avoiding denial greatly improves outcomes. In this case, the diver was 45-year-old male dive instructor with approximately 300 lifetime dives. Denied, denied taking medication, reported no history of medical conditions. Now the dive, or dives. The, the diver was teaching an advanced open water course to the local lake, popular with the divers. Water temperature ranged from 78 to 92. He was accompanied by his wife, who was assisting the class as a dive master of a series of five dives over the weekend. They completed three dives on Saturday with long surface intervals in between, followed by 16.5-hour surface interval before the first dive on Sunday. First dive on Sunday was 34 minutes long, average depth 43 feet, and to meet the depth requirement for the course, a maximum depth of 98 feet. After a 90-minute surface interval, divers began their second dive of the day, which focused on search and recovery skills. It was a 48-minute dive with an average depth of 50 feet 
maximum of 63. The diver reported non-stressful dives with minimal exertion besides following and monitoring his students. The dives were within the recreational limits. Dive computer was in a constant or conservative setting. His fastest ascent of the weekend was a rate of 29 feet per minute. Complications. As everyone was packing up after the fifth and final dive of the weekend, the diver began to experience a dull ache in his right shoulder and numbness in his right leg. <coughs> when he began to have difficulty walking, he asked his wife to drive back to the scuba shop. After a few minutes in the car, the driver's right arm started feeling cold. He checked to make sure the cold sensation was not because of damp, long sleeve rash guard that he was wearing and cold air blowing from the air conditioner. Then he noticed that the cold sensation had turned to numbness, slight tingling that progressed down his right leg and arm. They pulled over the vehicle, set up their Dan oxygen unit, and the diver began breathing from the demand valve. They also set up the non-breather mask in case the diver lost consciousness. Once the diver was breathing 100% oxygen, his wife called Dan. The Dan medic assessed the situation, directed them to the nearest emergency room. Fortunately, the diver's symptoms subsided after approximately 45 minutes of breathing pure oxygen. When he reached the hospital, there was no more numbness or tingling in the arm, and he could walk normally again. Though his symptoms were gone, he admitted he was admitted to the emergency room for further analysis. When the diver did arrive there, he was put on a non-breather mask with a flow rate of 15 liters per minute. The ER room doc was in contact with dive medics, or Dan Medics, who provided contact information for multiple hyperbaric specialists in the area for further consultation. The diver continued to breathe pure oxygen for about two hours, and his symptoms never returned. He underwent multiple tests, including echocardiogram, MRI, CT CAT scan, chest x-rays, all of which were unremarkable. The doctor monitored the diver for three and a half hours before releasing him. In total, the diver breathed 100% oxygen for approximately five hours, with the exception of during testing and necessary breaks. Doctors ultimately determined this may have been a case of decompression sickness that resolved before the diver was admitted to the hospital. The diver's report of mild unilateral upper and lower extremity paralysis uh, were resolved by surface applied oxygen, says that suggests a central nervous system DCS. The general recommendation in such cases is to treat with a hyperbaric oxygen therapy, regardless of symptom resolution. In this case, after extensive testing and prolonged monitoring, the physician was confident that uh, oxygen therapy, hyperbaric, was not necessary. The incident is a good example of how being a prepared diver and having an emergency plan, action plan, can prove fortunate. The diver ensured he was properly hydrated, well-fed, sufficiently rested throughout the weekend of diving. Although the reported dive profiles were within the diver's computer limits and slowest sense and adequate surface interval time between the dives, 
he still recognized and acknowledged the signs and symptoms of a neurological DCS. If the diver had ignored the symptoms and waited longer to seek professional medical attention, his eventual recovery might not have been so swift and or complete. In many cases, divers choose to neglect diver DCS symptoms or attribute them to separate causes such as heavy lifting, I had a tight wetsuit, I overexerted myself. The diver contemplated the numbness and tingling sensation in his extremities, acutely recognized the symptoms, and took immediate action. He acknowledged there were risks associated with scuba diving, and was adequately prepared with an emergency oxygen unit and various types of breathing apparatus. Both the diver and his buddy were trained in how to use the oxygen and how to determine when medical intervention was necessary. The diver's doctor advised him to discontinue repetitive deep dives and consult a neurologist for other possible explanations of his symptoms and get screened for a patient PFO, I think that's patent, foramen, ovo, uh, and wait 30 days before returning to diver or returning to diving. Uh, since then, the diver has returned to diving since the incident and not experienced further problems. This incident can serve to remind all divers of the importance of self-awareness and having an emerging action plan. It's critical to be mindful when considering symptoms, to have an immediate oxygen supply available, and seek professional medical attention, attention properly when necessary. And that's a good reason we carry oxygen, especially on the boat when we're out there diving. Yes. Yeah, that, and that had a good outcome. Yes. And, it, you know, at the site I went on my equipment, we just replaced the batteries in our AED, which the club has. Uh, since we are aging divers, it, it always makes me feel better to have, you know, two Dan O2 kits on board. And an AED is not a bad thing to have either. Well, very good. Thank you for that. I don't think I've got anything more other than uh, we can ask the listeners if they're enjoying the program. Uh, they could visit our website, www.scubaobsessed.com. Click on over the Patreon link if you're in the position where you could give us a little bit of support and you're finding value in the program. We certainly would appreciate that. Uh, we're on Twitter at Scuba Obsessed, Facebook.com forward slash Scuba Obsessed. You can send us an email at the show or the contact form on the website. Uh, do you have anything you want to plug, Mac, before we get on out of here? No, but I wish they'd find out some miraculous cure for this damn COVID. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, it looks like we've got a variety of vaccines that are in the final stages of trial and everybody's arguing whether theirs is 90, 91 or 92% efficient. So or effective. So it we'll seems that if nothing else, it would help mitigate the very, very serious outcomes older people seem to have. At least I would hope so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what they're, what they're hoping that these uh, vaccines will do is uh, create some sort of immunity, uh, which will, you know, they'll, prevent the vectors for which it can spread right now. Uh, currently in our area, for every person that's infected, it's like one and a quarter people will get it. So we're currently in a in a growth stage in the infection rate. 
Yeah, I think the hospital here down in uh, St. Joe has mentioned that they are starting to get overwhelmed, and that's yeah. never a good thing. Yeah, well, the the other thing which they haven't admitted is that they uh, they wouldn't they could change the uh, the types of cases that they're admitting and the elective surgeries, and that would free some space. So that, to my knowledge, they haven't cut elective surgeries like we had in the spring. Mm-hmm. So it's making those numbers look a little larger than they are. A little, a little skewed. Yeah, and there and there's not a ton of beds. Uh, for ICU in St. Joe. I can't tell you the exact number. They used to publish it. In the spring, they published uh, I, a daily. I look at the uh, Spectrum Health, which now owns the mm-hmm. Lakeland Hospital chain down here. They used to publish the capacity of both of the ICU unit and the COVID unit, and they no longer do that. So I think the reason they no longer do that is they didn't want you to see that they changed the allocation because they needed to get some uh, profit in there because they, they had... I think maybe only once or twice had they reached more than 50% capacity. So that's mm-hmm. what I'd like to know now is patient-wise, are there more patients now than there was back in the spring? Or is it just because you can, when you, percentages are the easiest way to lie. You know, if you had, say, there's six patients in the spring and six patients in the fall, but in the spring it was six of 20 beds, and now you're calling it six of seven beds, you know, it's still the same six. It's just what you want to call your open capacity. Right. So, uh, yeah, the school here in, uh, in the, in the town where I'm at, uh, has been averaging about one case a day. Uh, so far with the contact tracing, uh, none of the cases have been originating from the school. It's all been from students catching it someplace else and just being in the school. But as of this week, the Berrien County is no longer doing the contact tracing for students. As soon as they find out somebody's a student, they're making the schools do the contact tracing for COVID. Easier for the school because they know who's in the class. Yes. Well, and I think that's part of it. I mean, with the 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 cases significantly, I would say you could easily say that they've doubled to quadrupled depending on which number you look at uh and so as soon as you find out it's a student you know most they probably found out that most of the contact tracing is at the school and then it's mm-hmm. a matter of this of somebody at the school doing the uh reaching out to the uh families to find out what else has been going on so yeah but uh yeah, the, the schools in the area st joe has had a pretty high rate of uh, students with covid uh, Lakeshore, and then, you know, Berrien's kind of in the middle of the pack. They, for quite a while, up until last week, they'd only had a couple cases, but now it's averaging about one a day. I'd like to yeah. get that darn thing over with. Yeah. Uh, Karen's mentioning that uh, they're seeing a lot more COVID patients, uh, COVID patients, but Detroit's not as bad as they were earlier. And I and I think the reason Detroit was is Detroit was bad earlier yeah, because it's all about your your social patterns and you know how many how much time does it take by somebody to get a viral load where you can get it. So I think in Detroit they had it fairly early on. So while they certainly didn't reach herd immunity, uh, immunity, they did uh, have substantial number of people who would be more susceptible to getting it had gotten it. 
So it probably just gives them less now. Well, the where, density has got to be a big one there. Oh, density did, but they, you know, they had it pretty early. What I'm seeing, like the company I work for, we have locations in Missouri and in the county where the, the corporate office is up until June, they'd only had three known cases in the whole entire county. And I would say in the last month, just at our company, we've probably had 20 or 30 cases. And I think it's a combination of people got a little complacent. They uh, thought, well, you know, I'm not going to get it. I've been doing everything that I thought I had to do and it's not happening. And then, well, you weren't getting it because nobody had it. You know, once you started getting some positive cases in the area, then everybody who wasn't following the correct procedures spread it pretty quick. And, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of had to adjust their approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Karen, I was reading that too. She's talking about that there uh, some people were, they're saying the immunity is only lasting three or four months. It'd be nice if they get a study that would uh, document that. Because uh, now what they're saying, the reason why students or younger people were uh, may not have been getting COVID as much wasn't that they weren't getting it is because uh, the T cells and some of the uh, antibodies they said that an average school student gets the cold 12 times a year, which I thought was a lot, but they said the average adult really only gets the cold twice a year. So they're saying that that frequent cases of the cold was actually, uh, some of those, some resistance that develops for the cold for certain strains of the cold actually are also effective against COVID. So that's why they were saying students weren't getting it. Uh, and then there was also a, a paper I was reading that was talking about the uh, the difference between antibodies and T cells, and they're saying that you know the antibodies don't last nearly as long, so like the three or four months you're talking about, but the T cells can be multiple years. So they're saying that if you've got a T cell that's resistant, you know that's that kind of allows you to build those antibodies that even though you can get it, you're you're going to get a much milder case or maybe not, not even know you've got it. So again, not a doctor, <laughs> just read a lot. Uh, so yeah, hopefully we get this done. I'm ready. I'm tired of it. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be the first one in the line for the vaccine, but I'm usually fairly positive on the vaccine. So you know, as not, as long as they're not going to inject me and it's not poison, then uh, I'll probably be as soon as I can get it right now, I think the big fight with the vaccine is who's going to get credit, who's going to get paid, who can get it first, who has to get it. How are they going to have to get it? What I'm not for is the, this tracking, you know, these, these mobile apps tracking when you get a shot and, you know, you got to show your phone saying you got the shot. Yeah, that's all bullshit because even if it's effective, it doesn't stop there and who knows where other parts of it, but that, that's my soapbox. Try to try to not keep it political. I think the medical field should get it first because they're going to have to treat people. Oh, certainly, and that, and that's always how it's going to be. But you're seeing people who are taking this as like a global social initiative and doing it. And um, you know, I I have no problem with spreading it out. But I think if you underassume what our healthcare system is capable of generating then 
this will last for years and years and years if you make it a push, which is kind of what we've done. You know, we pre-funded this. You know, we bought the vials. We've done it. So um, there for the United States could easily be uh, between the different, you know, uh, pharmaceutical companies, we could vaccinate everybody in the United States in the first year easily. Uh, but there's some people who are, are wanting to make this a global issue. And even though we've paid for this as the United States for U.S. citizens, they, there's some desire to go, oh, well, we should spread it around the world, which means that, well, if you change the rules mid-game, uh, you're not going to get it stopped here. So I think what you do is you just, you just ramp it up all over. I mean, you, you, you can grow this. I mean, it's like if you were wanting to grow a, a plant, you know, you wouldn't just grow it in one location and then ship it everywhere. You would grow it in every, you know, you would keep, you grow the plant, harvest the seeds, keep spreading it out, and then having it as, produce as many places as possible, you'd end up with a lot more growth. And the same thing with vaccine. You just build more plants, more processing, more vials, whatever you need to get it done, that's what you need to do. Don't say, well, we've only going to make this amount and then we'll just divide that between the world because yeah, the, there's still an element of this is that who can we screw and who can we not fund? That, that's for another podcast. Yeah, yeah, I agree. No, no vaccine is 100% effective. You know, we, we've learned that from the flu. <laughs> For a variety of reasons. Yeah. 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 Cause I want to say, you know, most of them are 80 to nineties, I think is not uncommon. Maybe even a little bit more. Well, are you ready for that time of the show, Mac? I am propped up. I've already had my ice cream Sunday. I am ready. Okay. So let's see if you can spot the, the trend in this. Man, I've, I've got a couple backups if the first one doesn't work. A devout cowboy lost his favorite Bible while he was mending fences outside the range. Three weeks later, a mouse walked up to him carrying the Bible in its mouth. The cowboy couldn't believe his eyes. He took the precious book from the mouse's mouth. He raised his eyes heavenward and exclaimed, It's a miracle. Not really, said the mouse. Your name was written on the inside cover. Okay. (laughs) Now, if you just said prairie dog... You know. A prairie dog, that would have been better. Well, I mean, I keep the a mouse is this big, Bible is this big. I, I yeah. Come on, give me a big animal here. It, it had to have been a small, small Bible. Well, how, how about this one? Uh, a man is in the movie theater, notices what looks like a mouse sitting next to him. Are you a mouse? Asked the man, surprised. Yes. What are you doing at the movies? The mouse replied, well, I like the book. Yeah. Okay. So one more, maybe this one will break us, break it out. A man and his pet mouse walked into a bar. It's 5 PM and they're ready for a good night of drinking. Oh crap. My my screensaver just went on. (laughs) Damn computer. Can it know I'm doing something? Okay, here we go. We'll start this one over. Of course, I'll edit it out, which I'll forget to do, and it will be in there. A man and his pet mouse walked into a bar. It's about 5 p.m., and they're ready for a good night of drinking. They start off slowly, watching TV, drinking beer, eating peanuts, and the night goes on. They mix the mixed drinks, 
And then shooters, one after another. Finally, bartender says, last call. So the mouse says, one more for me and one more for my mouse. The bartender sets them up and shoots them back. Suddenly, the mouse falls over dead. The man throws some money in a bar, puts on his coat, and starts to leave. The bartender yells, hey, buddy, you just can't leave that lion here. To which a man replies, that's not a lion. That's a mouse. Okie <laughs> I take it that they didn't get any better. Is that what I Well, that's why they're called growers, right? Yeah, yeah. They didn't say they were good, so. Until next time, go out there and get wet. And stay safe.